This is the Game Level Learn podcast. I'm your host, John Cassie. Game Level Learn is a podcast about the ways in which games and gamification can shape teaching and learning to improve the experience and success of students. We discuss gamified methods, review new and old games to explore how those games might be used out of the box in classroom practice, and discuss great books on games, gaming, and gamification that'll rev up your thinking. Mike Irwin, welcome to Game Level Learn. Delighted to have you on the show. Thanks, John. It's good okay. to talk to you. Yeah, now, Mike, it's been a, it's been a while, but back in the earliest days of, of me doing this work, you were right there along with me trying out something that you had in mind in a very different school than the one, uh, you know, the one that I was working at. So tell our listeners a little bit about the school that you were working in when you decided, I think for these kids, a gamified approach would be, would be, would be something to think about. Yeah. So I had a conversation with a colleague of yours who happens to be my brother-in-law and I believe it was 2010. Yeah. Um, while I was working in Detroit, I worked at a, um, a charter school in Detroit. It was, uh, six through 12. Uh, it was a design thinking based charter school. Um, it was connected to a very, very well-known, um, design school as a college, the college for creative studies. Um, so we had a little bit of freedom in terms of curriculum development and things of that nature. Um, but it was in the heart of downtown Detroit, very, very high at risk population, uh, 95 to 97% free and reduced lunch, depending on the year. Um, about 99% African-American, um, and it was about a mile and a half from Tiger Stadium. So right, right downtown Detroit, um, I taught eighth grade at the time that I started um, doing the, the game-based learning stuff. And then it transitioned into seventh grade the following year. Um, now I'm teaching at a school in West Michigan on the other side of the state um, that is about 40% Hispanic, that some of that has transitioned over, but that's where I started. Yeah. So – so this was a charter school, Correct. and and it was uh, it was part of a of an organization that was really committed to doing design thinking in uh, in middle schools. Correct. Correct. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, this isn't a high school. This is a middle school. It, it, well, it's a middle school and a high school, oh, but they were they were they were operated separately. Um, the, I mean, the biggest thing that I would say in terms of if you know if you're asking why or what made it a design thinking based school, we would take a break at every quarter and we would have one week in between our two, we called it intercession where the kids would do a design based project that encompassed all of the curriculum that they had discussed throughout that quarter. So that's, that's the big, I mean, yes, it, it influenced our overarching theme and, you know, things like that, but that was the big tangible difference. Right. You had, you had to prepare your students for Michigan's uh, state exams. So, yes, correct. So that would be one of my criticisms of, of the school is while I agreed wholeheartedly and was really passionate about what they were doing from a design perspective, I almost wish they would have been a little bit more bold in saying that, listen, this is our curriculum. We're looking at a design-based, a creative-based education that does not match with a content-based assessment of, you know, multiple choice, things like that. But no, we were very much, I mean, we had to do the design curriculum, but we also had to prepare our kids for all of the state tests, the MME, the, the, at the time, what would eventually be the SAT and the PSAT, things of that nature. Yeah, right, right. So, so you're working in a charter environment, but it's also an environment that to someone who's looking at it from outside, it might've seemed a bit like any, any sort of typical public school environment. Um, yeah, yeah, for the most part, I mean, it, it, for, it absolutely from an assessment standpoint, yeah, yeah, from an assess. So in terms of goals and things that you have to create in like, Hey, I want to try this new thing from a curriculum standpoint. I, in my new school, which is a traditional public school, I have the exact same thought process and restrictions that I go through in my head, like, okay, but I have to consider this, 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 and this. Right. It's the exact same from where I was before to where I am now. So right. yes, from an assessment point, absolutely. Okay. So, so your, your students are largely from 
uh, from near the near the school within yes. the city? Or are they brought in from every every place or what? Well, so there, there's no transportation to a, a charter school provided. So the kids, in theory, could come from basically anywhere. Got it. Uh, the the um, the majority of the kids lived near and around the school, um, which I mean, right around the seven mile area. If you're familiar with the Detroit area, okay. Uh, so yeah, they were within a very close driving distance, but in theory, they could come from. They could have come from anywhere. They could have. They could have. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Detroit is is pretty segmented unless you go to the public schools. Typically with the charters, you can pretty much come from anywhere. OK. But these are kids who are uh, largely eligible for free and reduced. Yes. Yes. And, I mean, almost uh, all of them. And largely African-American. Correct. OK. Yep. Tell me about what kind of learners they were. What did you observe in them as as learners that made you make this leap to talk to uh, your colleague, or your brother-in-law, Nick, my colleague. So it, it it started from a conversation that, like, you know, I I was, you know, I mean, it was my second year of teaching, my basically my first full year of teaching, and I was kind of coming going through the initial grind of it and understanding that, like, while these kids, yeah, may have a bad rap, they genuinely want to do well, but one thing that they really don't want to give up is their independence. And so I was trying to find a way to allow them to do some of the things that I needed them to do, but to do it in their own way. And so we were sitting, he was in town for, I believe, a wedding and having a beer. And he just said, hey, you should reach out to this guy I work with. And so you and I started talking and it, it was like, hey, give this a shot. And, you know, you kind of explained your model and. I'll be honest, it was a little bit over my head at the time. And I'm like, there's absolutely no way this is going to work with my kids. Right. But the basic framework was it creates choice. Now you can create layers of choice. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you can add, so your, the games that you have done have had much more in terms of layers of choice than mine ever have. But I wasn't necessarily looking for an abundance of choice, but just some guidance. So like I have all the kids doing most of the same activities, but they just get to decide when they do them and the order they do them, which was enough for them at the time. Is it ideal in terms of perfection? No, but it was – it was what I needed. It was right. exactly what I needed. Yeah. Now, now for, for listeners, so that you, you have a sense of kind of some of the context here, um, this is roughly 2010, 2011. At this point, I'm working uh, in an elite uh, private school in Los Angeles, and I've gamified an entire 12th grade history elective. Mm-hmm. And so students have, to, I mean, to Mike's point, immense choice. And I have embedded within my gamified method uh, lots and lots and lots of age appropriate for a senior in high school critical thinking tasks and complexities in the way in which I wove together the gamified experience that from your perspective, Mike, you almost immediately realized this is too much for, for for my eighth and seventh grade kids. But the model worked. Yeah. Yeah. So like uh, the thing that I admired about it was that it was, and again, I don't know the experience of your listeners in terms of how much they know, but the idea was that there were knowledge trunks and skill trunks, if I remember correctly. Yep. Yep. And the idea was that they earn points by using the skills to demonstrate knowledge. And I would kill and I still would. I, I would still kill to be in an environment in which I could structure a class like that based on the current restrictions I have. I have not figured out how to do that yet. But for me, it was more they get to choose how or when they demonstrate and in what order. So like if a kid well, so I'll, I'll just say this. If a, the, the thing that I found the kids were most responsive to is if they started down a particular path in my game 
and they got frustrated and got stuck. They were able to stop and go in another direction, experience some success, and then come back and apply even some of those skills that they learned in their track of success to eventually come back and tackle that thing that was confusing to them. It gave them an alternative path in a time of frustration. That was my big takeaway, at least for my first game. That would be what I would say. My first takeaway from my first game was it gave them another path to go down when they experienced frustration. And when you think about the benefits of gamified instruction, that's one of the core benefits, namely that right. there isn't merely one way to accomplish right. the learning goal. All of your kids got the learning objective. Mm-hmm. It's just they had to sort out how they were going to get it. Right. Right. And right. That's, that's fundamental to the way that all games are played. Right. Well, and, and, and go a step further. Right. Like take it, it. You know, I mean, there's a certain level of life skill to understand that. I mean, how many times do you hit the roadblock right. before you realize that I need to try something different in order to figure this out? Exactly. So like that was kind of also I mean, I had some kids that would not listen when I said, hey, maybe try something different. No, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get this. I'm going to get this. And then they finally realize that it's okay to say, I, I, I suck at this right now. And that that's not a life or a, you know, a life judgment and move on in a different direction. Right. Like you, you, you learn to accept failure as what it is and not a, a terrible ending thing. Right. And moreover, once you've reached that point where you've hit that wall, mm-hmm. it's up to the student. It's up to the learner oh, to yeah. step out of where they are and right. make some decisions about how am I going to approach this, right? To me, that's the essential tool of, of 21st century problem solving, right? The world we live in is so complex and is changing so rapidly that if you can't really pivot Mm-hmm. Very quickly, as a learner, as an employee, as a worker, you, you're just going to get blown away by people who can. Right, but then, but then pivot back one more time. Right, exactly. Like, go back, go the back same to being, problem remains. Right, go back to being a teacher. Yeah, think about how hard it is to not be the one to force right. a kid. <laughs> you're right. To go. And I, I mean, I, I was not perfect at it initially. Right, like right. it. It took some time, but you have to allow them. I mean, you put those questions in their mind like, hey, I wonder if it would be easier if you went a different direction. You put those questions in their mind, but they have to be the one that makes the decision. And it really takes a, a hands off. And that's where the design thinking, teaching, training stuff came into mind, because that's what that's based on. Right. Is let a kid go in, pose some questions that might alter their thinking a little bit, but let them figure it out. You are not dictating what they learn. They are discovering whether you call it a, a Montessori type, whatever it is, but it's, you, you can't, you can't dictate. And it's, it's really, really hard to step out of that role as a teacher. It really is. Especially when you see a kid that's really, really frustrated. Yeah. yeah. See, th- that's where, that's where you have to rely on the plan. Yes, right? absolutely. that's where you have to rely. You have to have confidence absolutely. that what yeah. you planned makes sense, right? Because right. if the student is hitting the wall on your level two or your level three, mm-hmm. you know, hey, this there's a thousand ways to get through the level three that I designed, mm-hmm. right? I just need to give the kid enough breathing room, mm-hmm. right? Resist my natural teacher instinct, right? Because think about it. The gamifying teacher really acts a bit more like a coach when you're in class. Yes. Right? Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. Right. No coach of a, of a hockey uh, player is going to say, give me that stick and let me shoot this goal for you. Nope. They have to stay back because at the end of the day, that hockey player is going to have to get that puck into the net or prevent that puck from going in. Right. At, or, or they won't be successful. Right. Um, and so, you know, your, your experiences there with those kids, I think are, were so important to me 
Right. As I was iterating the work, because it's like, you know, it's okay for students to be in that place of real, what felt to them to be really unproductive struggle. But it isn't unproductive. It isn't unproductive. It just feels it. it, Well, in, in, so now that is the part that is a real struggle to accept and to have So you have so you have the game and they're playing the game, but also especially with younger kids to have that step away and say, okay, what's happening? Stop right now. What's happening? What are you feeling? What does that mean? And to help them, especially at a younger age, process that. Yeah. Like, you know, you're feeling failure. You're feeling frustration. But you woke up the next day you came to school is everything okay? Am I hollering, screaming? No. What am I doing? I'm encouraging you to find another way. And is that where, you know what I mean? Like right. you, you really have to there. I think what I learned, because this is absolutely not what happened in the first game, but right. more in the second game <laughs> yep. that, that I designed is that there are, you know, if you, if you do, some real reflection at the end of a game-based unit, in my opinion, what you'll find is that there are some very real opportunities of learning that you will miss if you don't have them thinking about what they're doing. Like you have to have them intentionally think about what they're doing and why they're doing it. And if you don't, you're missing it because this is not – simply about a better way to teach content. It is. But if you don't, if there's not that metacognition, if you're not thinking about what you're thinking about, you're really missing, at least from my perspective, what it is that drew me to that. You know what I mean? Like if it wasn't totally, totally right. If it wasn't about that metacognition piece, I would have been done with the first unit. Like, Oh, okay. This is kind of interesting. It's cool. It's some way to, you know, change things up for a unit. And, you know, you get to that time in November where you're just, you know, like it's been a long stretch to get to Thanksgiving. It's a way to change it up. But it's, it's that metacognition piece that is really what, what drives this, you know, and you, you can't throw those opportunities away. Exactly. So much of what of what needs to happen to really make the learning effective is this reflective component. And each individual student needs a slightly different question or needs to approach that question in a slightly different way, right. uh, you know, sort of depending on where they are in the in the process. Right now, Correct. you know, you you've been you've been an educator now for for a long time. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell me a little bit about what planning to do this was like, and how different it was than, say, conventional planning. Um, it, it, I mean, it's obviously very front end load. So, okay. So what I what I would say is it, it is a a three phase process. The the planning stage is intensive in that you're trying to get as much ready. Everything has to be ready for every possible notion that could happen in the game. So right. if a kid takes a turn, you're ready for it. Now, having said that, at the time that I started doing this, I, I was in a school that was, you know, I mean, I, I, again, the uh, I'm sure some of your listeners are listening to the description of my students and my kids. My school was very, John, you visited my school. My yep. school was a beautiful building. Oh, it was very, very well funded. State of the art. Yeah. Beautiful we, yeah. beyond description. We, we were all we were the resources very, you could have. Yes, it was. It was. But we were not one to one in terms of technology. use. So, yep. you know, when it came to another activity, I had to have that printed out and ready for them. Right. I think that the front end work from that perspective is a little bit easier now in that the school that I'm in now this year became a one-to-one school and it is much easier to do those things. Totally. So from that perspective, I think things have gotten much easier. The middle perspective in terms of planning is just going into it knowing that you really have to take a backseat role of a facilitator. You're I almost looked at it when I really got into like it was really hard for me to not in you're not allowed to speak without asking questions. If you're going to speak, you as need the to teacher. 
as the teacher, yep. you need to ask a question. You have it, it has to be a question that prompts a kid to go in another direction or to consider something they haven't considered, whatever. And then, and again, I, I spoke earlier about it, you know what my first game did not look like and what my second game did. To do the most with this, especially until you get the hang of it, which I know that I don't. John might be the only guy that I know that does. Um, the back end, you have to reflect on what you just did. Yep. You have to look at it in more than what you would typically do in a normal unit. You have to think about and even even if so, say you've been doing it for 10 years, even how it relates to the particular group that you have, you know, how does it work for a kid that's learning English? How does it work for a kid with autism or that, you know, has a specific learning disability, whatever it is that you really it makes you think in, in, in to a certain extent like that's, you know, I created a blog around this when I was when I was doing it called Keeping with Teaching and to a certain extent. You know, game-based learning did a lot of that for me in that it really made me think about why I was teaching and what I liked about teaching. Right. You know what I mean? It, you really, really have to think about why you're doing what you're doing. And when you're designed – so then when you go to designing your next game, so which is would be the fourth stage, design it in the same way that you did the first time. But every single step that you do, ask yourself why are you doing it that way. Yep. And then it will get better. You know what I mean? Like it, which again can be kind of a pain. It can take a while, but it it works. It it works. I, I, you know, I mean, I don't know how else to say it. And, and if you're doing it carefully, thoughtfully, yes, you come to a far deeper understanding of the needs of your individual student. Absolutely. Than, than any other method that I know. Now, maybe there are other ways, but simply watching the student struggle. Yes. And paying really close. See, now, now you know, you're, you're talking about the teacher as facilitator. You're also talking about the teacher as observer of learning. Oh, absolutely. Right? You're yes. watching no, right. Right. and you're paying very close attention so that when you move on to whatever the next thing you're doing is, you have a far richer understanding of the student's needs. And, well, you know. But you yeah. you talk. Well, and I think I think to a certain extent it redefines. I mean, because I mean, we can sit here and talk about the different roles that a teacher takes on based on their own perception. I mean, right? You know, we stand up in front of. I mean, I stand up in front of 150 kids a day, and I'm the center of attention, right? Like, I, you know, I mean, like, yeah, to a right, certain, right. All teachers are a little bit of egomaniacs, right? But I I, I think. Another thing now, as I'm sitting here thinking about it, is it redefines the role of a teacher to a from a student perspective to a true helper. Sure. When they're not standing up and giving you stuff and they're meeting with you and helping like you are truly a helper. And that does change the role. Now, I, you know, I in John, you know, I mean, this is your podcast and I'm just living in it, but. I often, I often make a little bit of waves within my department. I'm a, I'm a, a social studies teacher and yeah. that I, I teach for relationships. I, I teach for kids. I right. really don't. I love history, but I, I, I think you it's teach a little kids, bit, Mike. Right, right. Right. You happen to be teaching them history. Correct. Right? And, and, right. and so like for me, I, it may have come up in a couple of department meetings with me that i I don't really care about my kids learning history. I care about them learning to be better people and things and, you know, things like that. And I know that there are a lot of teachers out there like that, but saying I don't care about kids learning about history in a social studies department meeting can sometimes be a little bit of, uh, you know, a fiery subject, right? It can be a little awkward. It can be. (laughs) For the teachers, and I know there are a ton like that. I don't want to sound like a superhero by any means because I know I'm not. But for the teachers like that, this is also an ideal situation because you're literally meeting. I mean, my my role in a classroom went from standing up and trying to make sure that I made eye contact with every kid to literally sitting down and having a one-on-one conversation with every kid in the class. Right. And for, for the relationship-based teachers out there, it is – Awesome. You look forward to going in because you're going to check in because you don't just talk about where they're at in the game. Like, hey, how was your night? You know what I mean? Whatever it is. It's it's a great opportunity to do that stuff, too. Right. And 
on some level, that's the most important learning that the student is taking away. Not just the skills they're learning by doing what you have thoughtfully laid out for them in the gamified process, right? You're not having them do frivolous work. You are having them do the work of the historian. Right. 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 And they have to do the work because you will Mm. not tell them. No. Right. To your point, if you're going to talk, you're asking a question, right? You weren't the fount of knowledge. Where did the knowledge come from? It came from their reading, their synthesis, their, their effort. Well, and that can be, I mean, that, and, and I think that was the thing that I really struggled with is like, when I heard about what your kids were doing and I'm looking at your game structures and Nick's game structures, I'm like, Oh my God, this is totally different kids though. Because stuff. like I couldn't even do that when I was in high school, right? Like that's what I'm thinking. You couldn't do it as a high school kid. Oh, I couldn't yeah. do it as a high school kid. Yeah. And it, but at the same time, it, it, you, you really have to get past. If you're looking at any kind of game based, anything, um, you know, look past what is being taught because you can change that to the most simplistic thing out there. So like right now, my kids are writing an essay on the the causes of the great depression. You could put that together as a way of a game of writing this essay at a very, very simplistic level, whether it's for a 15 person, all special needs, you know, very low level class or a very high level, like you want them to potentially be able to use this as a college application sample of writing type. You know what I mean? Right. That a gamified plan can work for students at, at multiple levels. Right. And in fact, is one of the best ways to differentiate. Correct. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because, because, what you're looking for is demonstration of a level of mastery that's appropriate for the student. Right, exactly. And that's going to be different for each kid. But a, a well, win is a win is a win. Well, and let me let me point out that you said student, which is very, very difficult in a class of 30, right? Sure, sure. Like a, a lot of times we say what what's best for students, which is a lot easier to say right. than – what's best for student in an, in a, in a 30 person classroom. So yeah, absolutely. I, I guess w- w- my point is, is that focus on structure yep. when you're looking at examples, not on content because content is completely interchangeable. Um, yep. and, 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 structure and ideas is, is much, much better. Right. In, in my, in my book, level up your classroom, I offer dozens of examples of games from which you can extract their sort of game engine and do a lesson, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if I offered you a, an example from a second grade art class, you could just as easily take that into an 11th grade history class or a fifth grade math class in many right. respects yeah. Yeah. And right. because well, the content I mean, is not as important as the method. Well, bottom line, John, I mean, you take a, you know, a, a thirty to $40,000 a year tuition private school in Bel Air, California. Right. If you're taking something from that and I'm using it in downtown Detroit with 98% free and reduced lunch and they're working in both cases, you can – I I can't imagine – You can take it to the bank. Educational environment that does not fit in that continuum. That's right. That's right. right. And if it does exist, I would love to sit down between the two of us and try and figure out how to – Yeah, right. Right. If we can figure that out. Yeah, we could, right. we could we could we could make a we could make a million. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yes. now so your your students have to run through this sort of in an independent way, right? So yes. they have to chart their own course. How did right. they self-organize? What did they do? Did they work in groups? Did they did they I mean, what did what did they do? Like what did, what are they doing in class? I mean, initially they sucked at it. You know, I mean, I mean and and I think that's part of it too is like Oh yeah, you, you're bad you at it the first time out, right? Well, it's it's horror awful to quote Charles Barkley. It is not <laughs> good at all. Um, but it, it, it honestly, I think you can go two ways about it. I think you can let the kids struggle with it to begin with, and then come in and say, "Hey, maybe we could try some things like this out." Or you could start out by saying, "You know, hey, this is what I would recommend." I mean, 
middle school kids, they're not going to listen to you anyway. Like you might as well just let them go. And then maybe when they're ready to punch their heads in the, you know what I mean? Like throw they'll their come heads back to you. They'll come back and say, Oh yeah, maybe this guy's got something that, you know, is worth listening to. Right. Um, it was a lot of, I, I think what I found is that there were a lot of, you know, there was some group work. There were some kids that were, you know what I mean? They, they, they got together, they decided on their track and it was, it was a couple things. There were some kids that got together and then they said, I want to work with you. Right. Let's decide what we want to do and go that way. Some kids decided the track they wanted to go down. They worked for a while down there, realized there was someone else doing the same thing as them. And then they started to work together. Right. There were some kids that were, that would move furniture. They're like, no, I'm coming in. I'm moving this over here. Right. I'm working by myself. I'm on my way and I, and I'm going and, and you're okay with that. No, because you have to be. I mean, to a certain extent, like I, it, it is everything that is good about online education. And there's not a ton that I'm in favor of. But one thing that I, I, I like is the idea that you can pace yourself, right? Like there's always good things you can take out of everything. So with right. online education, you can, so like, say for example, you take a math course in which there are six units in a classroom and you fail three. Well, the ideal situation is that you would be able to take a class in which you only focus on the three units that you failed to then prove mastery and then move on. This allows you to do that. You know what I mean? It, sure. it allows you to go down that path. And it also, allow, I mean, I, the, my big thing was I did not, and I'll be honest, it was more from a personal interest standpoint than anything else. I, I didn't tell them whether or not they could work together. I kind of wanted to just see. Sure. Right. And, and, and it was interesting to watch because I had some that were fiercely independent. I had some that, you know, like, and I described the, you know, some of the other methods and, you know, I mean, it was very much, I mean, it was personal, right. And which is kind of what we're talking about with this whole thing and this whole podcast series is that it's completely personal in terms of how it works, you know, like it works for the individual. Right. Right. So just like the learning was individualized, the way in which they went about their learning was individualized. Correct. So you're, Rather than standing in the front of the room, you're getting your 10,000 steps every class. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that. And so I would basically rotate it back every other day. So um, one day I would have my attendance list sitting next to me and I would call them up one at a time. And it was a check in like and I and I would tell the kids. So like my my game was set up based on a grid system. And I would say, you need to have this many levels completed by this day. And so they would come up and we would talk about like, okay, where are you now? Those, the, the other nice thing about those individual conversations is if you have a kid that is, um, you know, has a learning disability in a certain app, you can have an individual conversation says, Hey, I know you're supposed to have six levels done but you're working towards this many levels. So you only need to have four and you're not doing it in a public forum where you're putting this kid in a position where they're going to be embarrassed. Sure. Right. So there's that element. And then the other day would be kind of, I called it wandering question. You'd wander and, and, and kind of ask questions. You'd sneak in and you'd have some kids that uh, leave me alone. Right. Like, yeah. you know, I, I got it. Leave me alone. Yeah. And like, you, you have to be careful because you, I mean, there were some kid there, there are some times in doing this where you are going to walk up to a kid that's going to tell you to leave them alone and you're going to be looking at what they're doing and they're doing it wrong. Right. And you have to walk away. Yep. Really do. You got to walk away. And, and it, 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 and it's two, two aspects, right? It's one, you have to let them make their own mistakes. You have to allow them to learn those skills and this, that, and whatever, but also from a, a relational capacity standpoint as a teacher, you, you have to, it, it, it's an opportunity for them to learn to trust you, not Correct. tell them to trust you. Correct. And, and so you, you, you just work with that. I mean, the, the big thing that I would say, uh, as well is that these units are going to take a little bit more time 
you know, I mean, they, they always take a little bit longer than what you think they're going to take. Um, but I'm, I've always been a guy that, that, you know, time is best spent in the best way that it can be. And it, well, you know what your not. kids need. Right, exactly. And you're going to exactly. spend the time on exactly. what they need rather than serving some uh, sort of arbitrary notion of what of how much time you should spend on a thing. Yes. Right? Your judgment as the teacher is, well, this this looks like it's about three weeks. Oh, look, it turned out to be four. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah, and that's just the way that's just the way that it that it works, you know. Um, so you make this plan, you put your kids through it, they walk the paces. What did they think of it at the end? You did a lot of data gathering. What did they have to say about it? Okay, so I actually went, um, when we you know started emailing back and forth about doing this, I went and looked up and found the survey monkey data from, because yep. I, I gave them a survey. So the, the other thing that I would add in, um, in, in terms of, I talked about the three or four parts, depending on how you look at it, of the planning process. Uh, and I talked about the reflecting piece. It, it, reflecting on your own is, is good, um, but make sure that you can look at what they think as well. So I'm looking at a survey that 93 students answered. Yes. And um, when asked about if this helped them cover material and learn material better for a final ex- for the final exam, um, what they thought in terms of if it helped them, it looks like 60 of so on a scale from one to 10, one being it did not help at all, 10 being it helped a great deal. Um, seven to 10. If you take those scores, 60 of the 93 kids at least, uh, chose, actually, I'm going to go a step further, 75, excuse me, if I'm adding this up right, 75 of the 93 said that, um, were scored from a seven to 10 on that matter. Um, pretty high. Yeah, no. Yeah. Right. In terms of motivation, if I go from eight to 10, one being not motivated at all, which there was one kid that chose one. Yep. Um, but from eight to 10, 10 being the highest, there were 70 students wow. out of 93 uh, that scored from 8 to 10 in terms of how it increased their motivation. So the kids were very responsive in terms of – so I was interested in two things in the survey. One, how much was it in terms of motivation? But then two – how much was it in terms of how did it help you learn, which were kind of two different things. So in terms of how did it help you learn, I don't know that that would really have anything to do with the structure of the game necessarily as much as the structure of the activities, right? That was, sure. that was more for something separate. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. What's what embedded was, within the game. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. For, yeah, correct. So for me, it was more about how, how, how did it affect motivation, right? Control your variables. And I was very, very happy, um, you know, with the responses that I got in terms of, uh, you know, what, how they felt motivated. And I had posters up that would say, you know, where kids were. So like, and again, we're talking middle school. So middle school kids, you know, they're sticker drunk. They love stickers and that's what they're all about. So sure. when they got done with an activity, I would have a poster up on the wall and I'd give them a stick, you know, a little dot sticker and they would go up and put it showing that they had completed a particular activity to keep track of, you know, whatever. Um, you know, I don't know that I would do it as a poster necessarily, Looking back at it now, like maybe something in their, you know, something that's more personal, but something that they can track their progress right. is, is very big. I remember, um, you know, you, you look at like app games now and things like that. and, and It's an and, achievement and, system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's and, digital badges. <clears throat> well, and it's, and it's kind of weird. Like I, I went through a phase where I'd, I'd play, um, you know, games on my phone or whatever it is. And I'd start to think about the elements of the game. So sure. like, like, uh, uh, temple run is a, is a game where you play and you're right and you're yep. running and whatever. And I'm, I'm finding like 
you know, I'd play it sometimes with the sound off because I'm sitting next to my wife in bed and, you know, I don't want to disturb her. And it doesn't have the same gratification as hearing yourself pick up those coins and things like that. So, like, I honestly thought about putting in, like, a button that made a noise that when a kid passed a level, they got to hit a button. Totally. It's like that. That is, I, I genuinely believe that that is legit. Like having a noise or a gratification system uh-huh. similar to a game. I mean, that's that's real, right? Like totally. all of us right now, if I were to say the Mario one-up sound, all of us can picture when that's you're right. playing Mario Brothers what it sounds like to get a, a, an extra life in Mario or to get a coin in Mario. You can picture that. Right. There's a reason for that, you know? Like it... it it does. I, I absolutely believe, and I just could never find the right. I thought the little, you know, little bellhop bell thing was kind of cheesy, so I just never did it. But now going back, I wish I would have just done that, just so there was something there. Right? You, you need like a big gong. Yeah. Right. Or, or yeah. like one of those kind of like, uh, you know, you know, like a like an uga horn. You know, or well, now. Do you I know mean, what I now, mean? Now phones are much more prevalent. I wish I could more just like push out like a sound into their headphones right like totally. they're like you know what i mean or like send them some sort of a snapchat that like popped up and said you've completed such and such level like that would right. be now, ridiculous. Now, now the way that i did it was that we had a we had a class bulletin board okay because yeah. we were using a learning management system that had a class bulletin board that worked like okay. facebook page right Okay. So when a student would do something for which they could earn an achievement, and of course, again, my class, the 12th grade history class, there's hundreds of these things. You know, when a student would earn an achievement, if they were the first one to do it, not only did they earn the achievement, but they earned a, quote, class first, right? Okay. So, and yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't make an announcement. I would just push it out onto the page, yeah. right? Congratulations to Mike Irwin. Class first using Twitter to gather meaningful data. Yeah, right. Okay, and then I would tell you, oh, you also get an additional achievement for having gotten that class first. So you got right. two, right? Mm. Oh, it drove kids bananas. So, I, you know, I, my pushback on that, and now my, my experience now is I have, I have a group of alternative boys. So I have 15 boy, freshman boys that did not pass – any classes in eighth grade, it's my job to make them pass Great all night. of the classes now, right? Yep. And I have an ESL support class, so kids learning learning English. Okay. So I think about I, – I try and think about things from the other end. And m- my challenge to myself is to figure out after the class first, what challenge can I put forth that would also be – right. Similar to a class first, right? In in stature, that would do so. Like a or or create a class first or a class unique. You know what I mean? Like yep. you did this in a different way, right? Highlighting certain things, you know, things like that. So, uh, you know, I mean, your your environment dictates your perspective, right? Yep. And so, like that is the way that I've thought about. But again, I mean, even the conversation that you and I are having right now on this particular topic is an illustration of everything that is good about this structure in that it pushes you to think about why you're doing everything that you're doing. Exactly. Exactly. Everything that you're doing. Right. Because if you're doing this gamified approach really intentionally, you can't take anything for granted. No, no, you can't. And you have to be really thoughtful about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Well, actually, you know what? Let me stop you because you can. You you can, but it's just not. It's 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 not doing it well. You know right, what I mean? Like right, you right, could because right. because you know I can I can flip this and turn and say you know you could just make all your copies and get everything ready, or even now in a one to one system, you can get your whole game board set up right. and just back and you're and you're good for three weeks. Right. Right. Like you're just hanging tight. Right. But if you're genuinely into this, if you want to learn, if you care about your kids, you're not doing that. Well, goes without saying. But also, if you really want to push, if you're really willing to look at where you are as a teacher, right, and and look at it from a perspective of I don't have this figured out. What can I learn? It's a great way to do it from the perspective of overall where are you as a teacher. But then again, also from a 
first semester to second semester. You do this at the end of a first semester and you have many of the same kids second semester, you're going to be able to teach those kids individually second semester better than you would have had you not done it. Right. Because you're going to have a better understanding of the things that your individual students struggle with. Right. That you do now. Right. Right. Um, back to your kids from, from Detroit, how'd they do on those standardized tests? Oh, much better or the same, if not better. So the first unit, um, in looking at the data now, I, um, we, I think I was at a, a 72, 73%, um, pass rate. And that was about what it was, uh, for the first time I did the unit, which yep. was kind of a permission slip. Well, <clears throat> I didn't a permission slip to do it again, but right. uh, it was enough of a permission slip to continue to do it. And then I saw, so I did, I think three units in that year. So one first semester and two second semester. And by the third unit, I was looking at about a 10% increase. So I had about 80% um, doing, doing better on the assessment. And then the the next year after that is, I I think it was even better than that, but I also gamified the assessments. Uh Uh-huh. Sure. Sure. So like I gave them the opportunity to, which is a little bit easier now. So uh, like as an example, uh, my new school has uh, an assessment system called Illuminate where you can create item bank assessments and yep. you can cycle you know, items out of assessments and basically create brand new things on the same mm-hmm. s- skill standard. Right. Yep. But it, you know, I mean, if, if at first you don't succeed, try again. So like my, 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 my second year assessments, it allowed students to be able to go back and retake similar to if you died in a level of a game, go yeah. back and retry. Right. So it was even, it was even better, but I realized that that's not the way, you know, the ACT, the SAC, SAT works. So I won't include that. Right. But it's there if you wanted to. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So, Mike, as we bring this conversation to a close, think about now, you, you were doing this work in the early days of your career, right? Now that you're more a veteran, how did doing this practice, gamified practice as a teacher, shape your teaching when you're not doing gamification? Because even I, I mean, you know, I wrote about it, I feel very passionately about it. I don't use this method all the time, mm-hmm. right? So, you, you know, when you're doing other things, how does it, how did it affect or shape the rest of your practice. Okay. So I'll answer your question in two ways. One from a classroom teacher perspective, um, it, it, it makes you focus on and cherish the opportunities in which you are learning about your individual students as individual learners. Yeah. You, you understand the importance of getting that, um, from a, so a little bit more background on myself, I, in the time that I was in Detroit, got my master's in administration and have aspirations to eventually become an administrator. And I've done some different things to, you know, help prepare myself for that. One of the things our technology director in our district um, is a great guy and he's, and he's working incredibly hard to help us become a, not just a one-to-one district and that every kid has device, but that it's truly part of our culture. Yep. And so he came to me this summer and he said, Hey, you know, I, and I had discussed it in my interview and we talked about it and it's like, Hey, I want to create a gamified system to encourage our staff to become more versed in technology. So like he included things like the the different levels of Google certified educators, Google level one, level two, things like that. Right. Right. So he and I sat down and he had the basic structure figured out, but he and I had conversations and I was able to kind of help him reframe what he was doing and give him a better structure on how to do that. And now it is, you go into many of the teachers in my districts, um, you know, classrooms and they have game boards yeah. on their, on their walls and they get badges and stickers and things like that based on where where they are at in in this thing and right. 
you know, I mean, again, the idea was his, but the understanding of structure and motivation and things like that. And it's, I think it's working. And so it's his brainchild, but it's cool to see, you know, the knowledge spread, um, and, and the structure help in terms of motivating other people to do things. And to a certain extent, it illustrates the point of like, it really doesn't matter how old these kids are, right? Kindergarten, all the way to, I was in a classroom with a guy that's, probably 55, 60 years old. And he's got a cane board on his wall, you know, with badges on it. You know, I mean, it, there's no age limit for this. Right. Right. Mike Irwin. John Cassie. It has been so good talking to you about the good old days. Absolutely. Right. Right. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, I'm really glad that you're doing this podcast, that you wrote the book and that, you were so willing to take a guy that you'd never met, never heard right, of, right. and say, hey, yeah, let me give you everything I've ever done and help you along the way. Right. So yeah. thank you for everything, John. Yeah. You're awesome. You're very kind. I'm so, sure all your listeners know that, but yeah, thank well, you. Yeah. Now, Mike, if a listener wanted to get in touch with you, how would they do that? What's your social uh, media look like? That kind of thing. Uh, so my Twitter handle, I believe is at Irwin M I two, um, email, uh, Irwin M at West Ottawa.net. Um, yeah, I mean, any kind of questions, anything like that, feel free to email me, um, shoot me a message on Twitter, anything like that. And I will get back to you. Um, you know, John sent me a couple of people that have done some work with game-based learning, and we've interacted back and forth. Um, always looking to hear and look at new things and figure out how that can be incorporated. So, absolutely, reach out. Brilliant. And of course, uh, you know, listeners, as you know, you can reach me at uh, John Cassie at Gmail. Uh, I am at John Cassie on Twitter. Game Level Learn a community with about a thousand uh, folks going strong on Facebook. Feel free to join us there. Thanks for listening. And Mike, again, a great pleasure. Always a pleasure, John.